in the Mahabharata, which is a Vedic text. It's, it is said, the question, what is the greatest marvel? Right, that's, it. that's the question in the text. What is the greatest marvel? And that question is answered, what is the greatest marvel? The greatest marvel is that each day death strikes and we live as though we are immortal. This is the greatest marvel. And I'm happy to see that that marvel, uh, which happens now regularly, happened back then also and has happened for a long time for human beings. And in some sense, we're all practicing with this marvel. That in some ways we think we're immortal or we have an illusion that we'll live forever. And uh, I don't know what will happen when we die. I'm open to seeing what happens. But I know that this body, like the bodies we watch today, this body is like those bodies. And that's what's going to happen to this body in some way, shape, or form. And so, in thinking about the talk tonight, I thought I would bring a few uh, components of Buddhist practice that I find very relevant to what we're doing here. And some are very directly relevant, you'll hear that, and some are a little more um, broader in the sense. I'm going to start with one of my... Um, favorite quotes from Zen Master Dogen. <clears throat> and Dogen says, he says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. And to study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to become intimate with all things. And that's, that's a very famous quote. And I'm going to read it again, right? To study the Buddha way is to study the self. So we're studying what's here. We're studying ourselves. We're, we're the doorway to the Dharma. And of course, you you understand you're hearing my commentary on Dogen, not Dogen's commentary on Dogen. And so he says, to study the self is to forget the self, to let go of the self, to not be so attached to the conventional sense of self. He doesn't say throw it away or get rid of it or deny it. He's saying, oh, let go of it. It's here, but don't just hold on to it tightly. Don't be so identified with it that you miss the Dharma that's also right here. So 
To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to become intimate, is to be intimate with all things. Beautiful teaching, beautiful teaching, right? To forget the self, to let go of the conventional reality and the limitation of that reality is to start to become intimate with all things, with each moment, with each experience, with each thought, without which, with each feeling, with each sound, smell, taste, touch. It starts to become unconcretized reality unreified reality, unsolidified reality. It becomes alive. And of course, just not of course, uh, you may know that the, sometimes it's translated to study the self is to be intimate with all things. Sometimes it's translated to forget the self is to be awakened with all things. And I love that in Zen they tie intimacy with awakening, that it's a very intimate manifestation of reality to wake up. We become intimate with all things because we're not separate from them. And then there's a second part to this quote, which I love. And it's not read as much. The, this first part is read. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to become intimate with all things. And then he goes on, he says, to awaken with the myriad things is to drop off body and mind and the body and minds of others. To awaken with the myriad things is to drop off body and mind and drop off the body and mind of others. No trace of enlightenment remains. No trace of enlightenment remains. And this no trace continues endlessly. Beautiful, poetic offering from Dogen. that we not only let go of our own reification or concretization of our body and mind, but we let go of that projection on others of concretizing, oh, that's who he is and she is and what he and she is. We let go of, of the, we drop off the body and minds of others. And he so beautifully says it, oh, no trace of enlightenment remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. That's just poetry, beautiful. And so often or sometimes people are confused to hear to study the Buddha way is to study the self because there's a lot of em emphasis in Buddhism on the not-self experience. And one of the things that I appreciated about the Buddha, and re meaning reading the Buddha, is that 
uh, when he was asked very directly about is there a self or is there not a self, he wouldn't answer that question. And in the commentaries it says, oh, he thought it would be too confusing for people if he gave an answer one way or the other way. And so he, he just left it for us to discover and to discover what is here, right? Because at least in my humble opinion, I have a, there's a self here, but there's also the recognition of what's not self that's right here. And part of what I believe we're doing here is to begin to look at this question of self through the perspective of death and the dying that is, as we've been suggesting, very natural for human beings. Very, very natural for the human experience to live, be born and live for a, a day or a week or a month or a year or 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100. Now they're saying 110, 120 maybe we could live till. And then it dies. That's just the nature of human reality. It's not a mistake that we die. But why study the self, as Dogen says? Because this is where awakening is found. This is where the Buddha's realization is found, is right through what's here, right through oneself. And the Buddha did his own uh, research, meaning practice, and he woke up and he said, oh, this is possible for us as human beings. And one of the important, and then he started and he saw for some people that wasn't so easy just to wake up. And some people did. Some people would just hang out with the Buddha and got it. And it's, you know, and please tell me if you're hanging out with me and you get it. Because I would like to get it from you too. <laughs> but, but, um, but for those of us who don't have a Buddha around this week, um, practice is very important. And so the Buddha pointed at many practices of mindfulness and compassion and kindness and loving kindness. But he pointed at Maranasati as a very, very, very important practice for waking up. And it's, I believe, why Venerable Analyo loves the practice, because it's a powerful practice for us to start to um, study the self and let go of the self and become intimate with this manifestation of reality that we call life. That's right here. Uh, Larry Rosenberg, who is a Buddhist teacher at Cambridge Insight Meditation for many years. I think he's still there. I don't know if anybody knows. 
Larry? He's still there. He's still there? Great. Great to hear that. Thank you. Um, so Larry once said, he said, of all the footsteps, he, qu he quoted this as the Buddha. I can't find it in the Buddha's teachings, but I'm, so I'm quoting Larry's version of the Buddha's teaching, the Buddha's teaching. He said, of all the footprints in the jungle, that of the elephant is supreme. Of all the footprints in the jungle, that of the elephant is supreme. Of all the mindfulness practices, mindfulness of death is supreme. And, I, and I've, sometimes I give this quote, sometimes I don't, but I happen to be looking at, through a fellow named, I think his name is Andrew Hollix. I can't remember his name. He's Tibetan teacher. I think, Anna, you know his name. Holichek. Say it again. Holichek. Holichek? Holichek. Thank you. So, and he had the same quote. And I thought, okay, Larry might be onto something here. And it's, it's a good quote. I appreciate it because I believe that this is a very, very powerful practice. And it is taught in many different ways in Buddhism, and I'm going to talk a little more about some of the ways. Here's one way that in a very conventional sense, in addition to death, death in the usual way, uh, Buddhism refers to marana as the rising and passing of all mental and physical phenomena, right? The momentariness of existence, of every moment of sight, sound, taste, touch, smell, feeling, right? It's just a moment. There's a moment of experience and then it passes. A moment of experience and it passes. It may look, feel continuous at times, but it's moment by moment that that con continuity is perceived, right? And so in the Vasudhi Maga, it says it this way. It Really, it's talking about a little bit about the nature of human consciousness in my interpretation. In the Vasudhi Magga, it says, beings only have a very short instant to live. As a wagon wheel, when rolling as well as when standing still at any one time rests on a single point of its rim, just so the life of beings endures only for the length of a single moment. Right? only for the length of a single moment of consciousness. When it is extinguished, so also is the being extinguished. For it is said that the being of the last moment of existence lived, now lives no longer, and will not live again later. The being of the future moment of consciousness has not yet lived, nor, does, nor also does, has not lived yet, nor also does not live yet, yet live and will only live later. The being of the present moment of consciousness did not live previously, lives just now, will not live anymore. And so it's a very uh, pure view of experience. There's just a moment of senses arising and passing and arising and passing and arising and passing. And we attribute a continuity, Eugene, you know, walked from here to there, and that has its conventional truth. But the, the um, Vasudhi Magas pointed at a, 
another level of reality that is more subtle to perceive, but perceivable on long retreats often. I don't know about often, but definitely perceivable on long retreats. So I like to mention that as a different kind of arising and passing in the simplest way to, that I understand. Oh, each moment of experience is just arising, passing, rising, passing, living, dying, living, dying. And of course, when we broaden it even a little, I, you could, I can say, oh yeah, remember 10 minutes ago? That seemed very real, didn't it? It's gone, right? And then of course I could keep shortening. Oh yeah, remember five minutes ago? Oh, that was real too. I was saying something, but it's gone. And a minute ago is gone. And half a minute ago is gone. And so we start to, as we settle, we can perceive different levels of reality that are all true, right? The conventional has its relative truth. There's a story that I appreciate very, very much in Buddhism, and I thought I would read you a story tonight, if you're up for that. It's called the uh, Anattapindaka Sutta, the Instructions to Anattapindaka. And for those of you who are, who are interested in it, it's uh, Majinatma Nikaya number 143. And Anattapindaka is one of our forebearers, our forefathers. He was uh, a businessman at the time of the Buddha, during the time of the Buddha. And he came, he discovered the Buddha at some point. And he got really interested. Oh, there was really an awakened being around. And he was taken with him and followed him. And he didn't become a monastic. He stayed a householder. He had family and business. And he kept doing his, he kept living like we, most of us do and will do, living in the householder world. But he was very um, moved by the Buddha and the Buddha's teachings. And Anattapindaka, he did a beautiful thing. He said, well, what do you need, right? How can I help, basically, he said. And the Buddha said, well, some of the, we need a place for the monastics. And, and Anattapindaka had some means. And he said, well, okay, can I get you a place? And the Buddha said, sure. And and he said, Buddha said, go ahead. And Anathapindaka went to Jetta's Grove, which he knew the Buddha liked, which was a very beautiful place uh, in, the, in the area. This is, I guess, northern India. And uh, he went to Jetta's Grove and he went to the, uh, the Brahmin who owned it, the man who owned it, and said, please, I would like to buy your land. And the guy was not interested in selling his land. I mean, he, the guy knew it was a great piece, a beautiful piece of land. And he said, oh, really? You want to buy my land? And yeah, he said, oh, yes, I want to buy it for the Buddha or whatever. And, he, and the guy said, well, yeah, you really want it? And not to be, oh, yes, really want it. He said, and the 
the man said, the Brahmin said, he said, well, if you cover it with gold, gold, I'll give it to you. That, that's how much it costs. You have to cover it with gold. So, you know, thinking Anatta Pindika would never do that because that was a lot of money. It would be a lot of money now. Like if we covered Spirit Rock with gold in order to buy this land, that's a lot of money. And, and this, you know, we, we got a good deal on Spirit Rock. <laughs> really, we did. Um, uh, and so, but Anatta Pindika covered it with gold. So he did a very personal thing. He gave a tremendous amount of dana to support the Buddha and the monastics. So the monastics, this was the first Buddhist monastery was uh, at Jetta's Grove. And it's not my story. I'm trying to give you some context about who Anatta Pindika was in the, in the text. And so, and he continued to be a supporter and uh, practitioner, follower of the Buddhas for the rest of his life. And then in, in uh, advice instructions to Anatta Pindika, it comes much later in his life. There are other stories about him in the text. But then um, the Buddha hears that he's not well. And he sends um, two of his um, um, devotees, uh, two of his senior monks, to go um, visit and see how's Anatta Pindika doing. And so here's the story. That's, and I'll give you an edited version. And so uh, Sariputta, he went to the home of Anatta Pindika with Ananda. And, uh, and, right, and they arrive and they sat, sit down and they say to Anatta Pindika, the householder, I trust you are getting better, householder. I trust you are comfortable. I trust your pains are lessening and not increasing. I trust there are signs of their lessening and they're not increasing because they heard he was having a hard time with his illness. And Anatta Pindika, who's very direct, says, I am not getting better, sir. I am not comfortable. My severe pains are increasing, not lessening. And there are signs of their increasing. And then he describes what one can experience when we have very strong, and he's aging, he's old, uh, body dukkha. And so he goes on, he says, extreme um, forces slice through my head, just as if a strong man were slicing my head open with a sharp sword. And these are, he's graphic here, so be aware of that. Extreme pains have arisen in my head, just as if a strong man were tightening a turban on my head with a tough leather strap. Extreme forces carve up my stomach cavity, just as if an expert butcher or his apprentice were to carve up the stomach cavity of an ox with a sharp butcher's knife. Right? He's describing his physical experience. He says, there is an extreme burning in my body, just as if two men seizing a weaker man with their arms would roast and broil him over a pit of hot embers. I am not getting better, venerable sir. I am not comfortable, right? So you hear the situation and the directness of the situation. 
that Anattapindika is dealing with. And so Sariputta replies, he says, Householder, you should train yourself thus. And then he, he gives him these teachings that are given to us. Because Anattapindika is a household. He represents us. He's one of our forebearers. And so Sariputta says, Householder, you should train yourself thus. I won't cling to the eye, and my consciousness will not be dependent on the eye. That's how you should train yourself. I will not clear to the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and my consciousness will not be dependent on my body. I won't cling to intellect, mental activity, and my consciousness will not be dependent on the mental activity. That's how you should train yourself. And then he goes on and he gives a very full teaching that I'm going to give you because this is worth hearing, the specificity of it. You should train yourself in this way. I won't cling to forms to sounds, to smells, to tastes, to tactile sensations. My consciousness will not be dependent on these things. I, will, I won't cling to ideas and my consciousness will not be dependent on ideas. This is how you should train yourself, householder. Train yourself in this way. I will not cling to the earth element, the water element, the fire element, the wind element, the space elements. These are part of Buddhist teachings that sometimes you'll be on retreat and the instructions of, of elemental meditation will be given to you to be aware of the, and this happens with Venerable Analyo after you do the body in the way I described earlier, he will take you through the, the uh, f- being aware of the earth element in the body and then the water or liquid element in the body and then the uh, fire element in the body and then the air element in the body, which is the breathing is part of it, and then the space element. And I won't let, I won't cling to the consciousness element also. My consciousness will not be dependent on the consciousness element. That's how one should train. Then householder, train yourself in this way. I won't cling to form, feeling, perception, thought fabrications. My consciousness will not be dependent on these things. I won't cling to consciousness and my consciousness will not be dependent on consciousness. And then, householder, train yourself in this way. I will not cling to the dimension of infinitude of space, infinite space, better way to say it. I will not cling to the dimension of uh, infinite consciousness. I will not cling to, to the dimension of nothingness. And he's describing states of consciousness that are possible in very deep samadhi. These are available to human beings in samadhi. But, but we won't cling to them. I, I won't cling to the dimension of nothingness. I won't cling to the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. Um, 
My consciousness will not be dependent on this. That is how to train oneself. And then he continues, I won't cling to this world. I will not cling to this world. My consciousness will not be dependent on this world. I will not cling, I will not cling to the world beyond. And my consciousness will not be dependent on that. And he keeps going. He keeps, he's giving a very deep, very thorough teaching of letting go. Right? And he, he I'm going to, a little bit more. Uh, uh, train yourself in this way. I will not cling to what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, attained, sought after, pondered by the intellect, and my consciousness will not be dependent by these things. I will not cling to what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, attained. Right? Very full, very deep instruction of letting go. And when this was said, Anatta Pindaka, the householder, wept. Anatta Pindaka wept and shed tears. And partly I pause to let you reflect on why did Anathapindaka cry? Right? He cried hearing these teachings and even Ananda wasn't sure why. And Ananda says to him, are you sinking, householder? Are you foundering? Meaning, are you dying now? And Anathapindaka says, no, Venerable, I am not sinking. I am not foundering. It's just that for a long time I have attended to the teacher, meaning the Buddha, to the, it's a capital T here, the teacher, and to the monks and nuns who inspire my heart. But never before have I heard a talk on the Dharma like this. Right? Never before have I heard a talk on the Dharma like this. And, and then Ananda explains why he hasn't heard this before. And he says, this sort of talk on the Dhamma householder is not given to lay people, to householders clad in white. This sort of talk on the Dharma is given to those who have gone forth, to monastics. And so you, you can reflect for a moment, why has, is it not given to householders? This radical teaching of letting go, right? Of consciousness in every form. And thought, feeling, smell, taste, touch, things, this world, even the next world, right? Not clinging in this way. And so he says, this sort of talk on the Dharma is, is only given to those who have gone forth, who are monastics. And Anattapindaka speaking for us, as he's dying, he's speaking for us. He says, well, in that case, Sariputta, Venerable, please let this sort of talk on the Dhamma be given to householders clad in white, which was the traditional dress. There are clans people with little dust on their eyes who are wasting away through not hearing this dharma. There are those who will understand it, 
meaning there are those who will wake up. And I love that this was his dying gift to us. And of course, Anattapindaka gave us many gifts. He gave us the first monastic setting for Buddhism to land in this world. And then he gives us the, what I believe are some of the deep, maybe the deepest teachings, which is fully letting go. And it said that when Sariputta and Ananda left, not long after they left, Anattapindaka, the householder, died and reappeared in the Tusita heaven. And then Anattapindaka, in a far extreme of the night, uh, then Anattapindaka, in the far extreme of the night, his extreme radiance lighting up the entirety of Jetta's grove, went to the Blessed One, and on his arrival, bowed down and stood to one side. And then there's a whole piece of the Buddha recognizing Anattapindaka after he's died and his awakening, which happened at his death, of letting go. Let's see. And Anattapindaka, who is now uh, in the Tusita heaven, he saw that the teacher approved, right? And, and uh, uh, has approved and he paid homage to the Blessed One and then he vanished at once, right? And the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus, the, the uh, monks and nuns, saying, last night when the night was well advanced, there came to me a certain young God of beauty, beautiful appearance who illuminated the whole of Jetta's grove and paid homage to me and the teachings and then stood at one side and, and talked about the beauty of the Dharma, which is what Anattapindaka talked about with him. And Ananda said to the Blessed One, surely, Venerable, that young God must have been Anattapindaka. And, and the Buddha says, good, good, Ananda. Ananda got it, right, who that was. You have deduced the right conclusion. The young God was Anattapindaka, no one else. That is what the Blessed One said. And Ananda was satisfied and delighted in the words. And so partly I read this and tell this story because it's a story of waking up to letting go and to realizing our potential. And it comes through the death of Anattapindaka. And it's again one of the ways death is highlighted in the Buddhist teachings as a vehicle for awakening. Because who knows what's going to happen when we die? Anybody want to tell me? All right. I mean, you, you, you can't tell me now, but you can write me a long note. Tell me exactly <laughs> what's going to happen. I'd, I'm curious, and I've had my own near-death experience, and 
but there's so much uncertainty really about what will happen as they're pointed at in any real moment because no two moments are the same. No two moments are the same. You know, and I had a serious accident and almost died, could have died, um, and didn't die. And I had very uh, powerful experiences of both dukkha, but also some other things happened even in the hospital in the first nights of the hospital that I knew nothing about before and that start to show something about how, I don't have the right words that I could say, magical reality is, how, un, how much unknown there is for us about what reality is and that I have a lot of comfortability with that, with the not knowing, because it was so clear. That was one of the things that really came from my accident was because I'd been practicing a long time and done good practice, serious practice, been teaching, and, and I thought I knew something. <laughs> it was humbling to see that I knew something, you know, and there was so much I didn't know about reality and about what's possible. And, and one thing I do know is I don't expect whatever is going to happen when I die to be like what happened when I almost died. Maybe it will be, but I don't know. It could be so much wilder because what happened was so much outside of my imagination of what I thought could ever happen in any way. And so that kind of experience changes one, changed me. And very, and it, of course I'm not, I don't want to glorify, go have a big bike accident or anything like that. It was a lot of dukkha a lot of body dukkha, a lot of all kinds of dukkha, a lot of dukkha for my family, you know, horrible for my family, really hard. You know, my wife having to deal with doctors and, and, and of course the doctors, just to clarify, so I had what they called the mild traumatic brain injury, which I'd never even heard of until after I had it and was coming back and they explained to me that that's what I had. And I, I, I would never want to know what a very traumatic brain injury was because mild traumatic was plenty bad. And because everything got unplugged for a while. Unplugged, like seriously unplugged. So seriously, I didn't even know it was unplugged because there wasn't enough of me left to know that it was unplugged. And yet, even there, things happened that were, you know, changed my whole life. And I mean, good things happened even during the unpluggedness. So, and I'm just saying that because we don't know what's going to happen. We're entering the unknown. Like Anatta Pindaka was just sick. He didn't know 
the teachers, Sariputta and Nanda, were going to give him this powerful, deep teaching that led him to, in the mythology of the uh, uh, Buddhism, the Tusita heaven, which was is a really good place in in Buddhism. And um, <clears throat> and so your presence here with the reality that the body dies, your, your maranasati practice of getting, in Eugene language, real with this truth that's just a normal truth for human beings and for all beings, we hope will help us be very present in the lived moment when that life ends also. And so we'll see what happens when life ends, you know? And I don't know, maybe it's some people say, oh, nothing, it's oh, that's the end. Maybe, I don't think so, but I'm open to possibilities. And, but, you know, and in Buddhism, they say there's different heavens or different bardos you might go in okay I'm open to let's see or one will be reborn I don't know let's see but the let's see is the same let's see of what's here right now what's actually here right now what's actually hearing my words right now what's actually thinking your thoughts right now and knowing your thoughts and comprehending your thoughts right now. Let's bring that looking clearly, being present, staying aware of this magical, mysterious living reality that I'm looking at, you know, all over the room. And that's why this weave of life and death is so intimately true because it's all here, right? The life is here. But who you were 10 years ago, that person is not here, right? I mean, I, let's see, 10 years ago. <laughs> this is one of the funny things about getting older. You can't even remember 10 years ago. But, but you, you can, you have to think about it a little. <laughs> you know, and it was good. I mean, 10 years ago was good and it was real. But it's gone. That is not here right now. Memories are here, ideas, impressions, all that stuff, that may be here. But what's here is actually brand new right now. And that I am proposing is true for each person in this room. That this breath is the first time you've ever taken this breath. And it could be your last breath. But the next breath will only be the first time you've ever taken that breath in lived reality. And so the contemplation of death, 
allows us to let go of everything, but also in conventional reality, it helps us let go of some of the limitations of our usual identity. We start to see that life is short. Again, however long, it's short. And so, what's true now? What's important for you now? This is from Diane Ackerman. She said, when you consider the inevitability of death, when you consider the inevitability of death, after which we may well go out like a candle flame, then it probably doesn't matter if we are awkward sometimes. It probably doesn't matter if we are awkward sometimes or care for another too deeply or are excessively curious about nature or are too open to experience or enjoy a non-stop expanse of the senses in an effort to know life intimately and lovingly. Right? Given the inevitability of death, it probably doesn't matter if we are awkward sometimes or care for another too deeply or are excessively curious about nature or too open to experience or, or enjoy a non-stop expanse of the senses in an effort to know life intimately and lovingly. It probably doesn't matter if sometimes we look clumsy or get dirty or ask stupid questions or reveal our ignorance or say the wrong thing or light up with wonder like the children that we all are. Let's sit for a moment.
May all beings be free. <laughs>